But I was just overwhelmed by when I started talking about social impact and blockchain, so many people just came to me and they said, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm so interested in what you say. How can I help you? And so I just realized that there are so many people in the blockchain community who actually really deeply care about the world, about humanity and about what this technology can do. That is Dr. Jane Thomason, and this is episode 46 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. Welcome to episode 46 of the Blockchain Pro podcast. I'm Adriana Bellotti, and today's guest is Dr. Jane Thomason. Jane has dedicated her life to working with communities in developing countries, and her story is one of a real-life hero. Let's get to know this amazing woman. Hi, Jane. Hey, how are you? So good to see you. You too. Thank you so much for um, talking to me today. I'm really excited about interviewing you. I'm excited to be on the show with you. Looking forward to it. So let's dive right in and go back in time and talk a little bit about what you were working with before you discover crypto. Yeah, sure. So nearly all of my life, I worked in developing countries Uh, initially for organizations like the International Development Agencies, Asian Development Bank, USAID and so forth, and and governments. Um, And then uh, I started my own company, which contracted largely to government and international agencies, but working mainly in healthcare in developing countries. Uh, But we broadened towards the end into other aspects of women's empowerment and governance. So so the, the reason that I really want to talk about that is that I'm deeply knowledgeable and experienced about some of the challenges that people experience, especially in developing countries and especially people who are poor and underserved. So, so this was kind of my background for my discovery of blockchain. That's interesting because I'm one of those people who grew up in an underdeveloping country. I was poor and I had to overcome a lot of challenges to be in the position that I am today. And I'm very grateful that I was able to. So what were some of the things that you experienced in that arena? Well, look, I I mean, and I, I have literally been in villages where they'd never seen white women. So I worked for the Institute of Medical Research in Papua New Guinea and we would literally be flown in by a chartered aircraft into a very remote airstrip and we would be left there. So there's no electricity, there's no telephone, um, there's no communications in or out and we would have, let's say, some work to do for the Institute of Medical Research where we had to walk from village to village 
um, for two weeks and then we would hope that the plane might come back and get us two weeks later. That was it. So, so I had the experience of living with, because we slept with the villagers, we ate with the villagers, we listened to the stories of the lives of people in, you know, extreme isolation and hardship and, and was able to kind of understand the issues for them. And I can remember being struck uh, before I went to New Guinea by someone who was a young man from PNG. He said, I, I only ever had one pair of shorts and I used to wear them to church. And I, I can remember being kind of shocked that he would only have one pair of shorts. But then, of course, you realise when you spend time with people in subsistence villages that they generally don't wear any shorts. Shorts is best Sunday best for church and and so I guess I, I learned a lot of things about um, re relearned the art of storytelling because we've lost that and just understood the basics that people need to survive but also the incredible hardship that they have because they they don't have bank accounts so if someone wants to send them money maybe they've got a relative who's traveled to the city who wants to send them money they can't receive it and then they may have to undertake like a very long trek for hours and hours to get to the nearest point where they might be able to get transportation to get to a centre where there's a bank. And this can take anything from, you know, one to five days depending on where people live. And then they get to the place where there's a bank. It takes them a day to be able to get their money if they can, because of course they probably don't have an identity. So how do they identify themselves uh, in order to be able to get the money and then spend a long time and uh, money getting home, but realizing that Western Union or the bank or whoever it is um, Recording in has uh, taken a percent of the money that was sent. So that, you know, out of $200, they may end up at home with the equivalent of $60 and, and so much effort and labour. So it was those sorts of things that, you know, I really understood the level of difficulty and therefore when I started to appreciate what was possible with blockchain, particularly around identity and direct transfers of remittances to people um, and particularly in low infrastructure settings, that's when I got really excited. And I guess this is a story that we hear a lot in the crypto community, right? It's banking the unbanked. But this is a difficult thing to do because as you mentioned, obviously I'm, I'm assuming it's changed a whole bunch since back then to now, but uh, in a village, how do people even access technology for that to matter? Well, so, so, you know, we've got to have a look at mobile penetration rates. So probably, being really honest with you, those people I was talking about, they still don't have mobile phones. But, but if you look across the world, we've now got 70% penetration of mobile technology, which means that, you know, a significant majority of people have access to it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, not all technologists, but some have appreciated that not everyone's got a smartphone and that you need to develop some of this technology for 2 and 3G applications or even mesh net um, setups and so forth. So people are starting to realise 
that they have to develop simpler applications for those people um, who don't have mobile connections. The, the other couple of things that I think are worth mentioning is that governments are understanding how important mobile technology is to be able to connect people um, to the global economy. So there's a lot of experiments going on around the world where governments are issuing low-cost mobile phones to remote communities so that they have that. And then finally, some both uh, governments and some of the blockchain projects that I'm aware of, and Electronium is one of those, they're doing deals with the telcos. So people can actually receive uh, free airtime in exchange maybe for small amounts of cryptocurrency. So people are innovating and coming up with ways that doesn't mean every last mile person can be connected. But if you start with the premise that 70% of the global economy can be connected, that's a heck of a lot of people. So what was what was the light bulb moment for you? Was it Bitcoin came about? What, when did you first start paying attention to this um, ecosystem? Oh yeah, well, so back in about 2010, I would say my son uh, kind of came one day and he said, oh, mum, they've invented this digital currency. You should buy Bitcoin. And, and I just thought he was ridiculous. And I completely ignored him and told him to go back and study or whatever it was I thought he should have been doing at the time. And of course, it was maybe 10 cents or something at that time. And, you know, I just forgot that interaction. And he came back in about 2016 and he said, hey, mum, remember when I told you to buy Bitcoin? Did you buy any? And I said, no. And I think by that time it was maybe around $3,000 or something, a lot more than 10 cents. And he said, now, listen, you didn't listen to me when I told you to buy Bitcoin, but you need to learn about blockchain, which is the platform that Bitcoin is built on, because it's going to change everything and it's going to be really important. So I felt a bit ashamed, really. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to start reading about this technology. Um, and and I started reading about it and trying to find out about it. And, and really all there was around at that time was a lot of technical detail around, you know, proof of stake and Merkle trees and then a lot of hype about crypto, which I didn't find at all attractive because, um, you know, money's never been a motivator to me. So I'd, I, I didn't like it much, but I kept reading about it. And then I, I sort of started understanding outside of cryptocurrencies what the technology could do. And one day I was just sitting there reflecting. Now, my company had worked on the reconstruction of Banda Aceh after the Boxing Day tsunami. I don't know if you remember that, but 200,000 people lost their lives in Banda Aceh alone in the tsunami. And we came in not long after that. So I saw the impact of this devastating tragedy on the population. But I realised it wasn't just that so many people lost their lives. No one knew who they were. And no one knew who the people were who were accumulating in the camps. No one had identities. All the bank records had been washed away. All the health records had been washed away. All the land titles had been washed away. And then donors started flocking in, sending money. No one knew whether it was getting to the right people. Human traffickers sadly come into settings like that and, 
and they're, it, they're able to operate because of the lack of identity. And I just had one of those kind of aha moments when I thought like if all of this had been connected and, and sort of secured through some sort of biometric identity on the blockchain, that it wouldn't have changed the tragedy, but it would have made the reconstruction and the rebuilding so much easier. And it was literally at that moment, I just went like, oh, I have to get behind this and I have to make this technology live up to its promise. Yeah, because you cannot change the strategy, but you can change how you respond to the strategy, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, so I, from that moment on, I just, up until then, I suppose I wasn't committed. I was trying, but I wasn't committed. <laughs> from that moment on, I was really committed to learning and understanding and then being a voice to help people connect with this technology and understand how important it is because you also have to remember back this is 2016 I think it would really be considered you know a bit of a fringe technology uh, and and inhabited by really fringe kind of people the anarchists and the libertarians and all these people in dress-ups and so you know I wanted to go and talk to governments and international agencies <coughs> and tell them why this was important and it was a very difficult time to do that I can tell you but I just decided that was that was what I needed to do and so I set about to do that and what what were some of the lessons that you've learned and ways that this technology can be implemented to start tackling those problems well I learned lots of lessons and um, some about the technology and some are just about people And the first one that I learned, which was, uh, I was really heartened, was I thought, I'm going to turn up at my first blockchain conference and hackathon, and people are just going to reject me. No one's talking about social impact. I'm older, you know, they're all cool, driving their Lamborghinis and doing whatever they do, and no one will want to talk to me. But I was just overwhelmed by when I started talking about social impact and blockchain so many people just came to me and they said I hadn't thought about that before I'm so interested in what you say how can I help you and so I just realized that there are so many people in the blockchain community who actually really deeply care about the world about humanity and about what this technology can do so so that was the first one and and their generosity and I've always experienced that You know, if I go to someone and say, hey, I'm looking at this project, you're a developer, can you have a look and just see if, you know, if it's real and the code's solid? They do. You ask anything which is around, you know, something that has a high purpose, people help you. So that's, that's I think, my first thing. The second thing was, you know, in those early days, you would be forgiven for thinking that Ethereum was the only, Bitcoin and Ethereum were the only blockchains that existed in the world. And that there was real kind of tribalism then developing. And as other platforms came along, you realized that there was the, you know, Ethereum tribe and then the EOS tribe came along and now we've got the Cardano tribe and all of that. And and I, I don't know that I'd appreciated that the tribalism is about the need for the network effect. So they need the people to be loyal and devoted and build their apps on the top of, you know, their platform. So I, I don't think I'd realised that and the power of the network until, 
um, you know, I, I, I started getting to know it a little bit earlier. I guess, you know, the other things, and people are solving them now, was just how big of an obstacle the cost and scalability issues were. And I, I remember looking at a project that sounded really great, which was about poor farmers and supply chains. And I, and I asked for the people to let me have a look at, you know, what their cost model was. And I just looked at it and I went, there is no way ever any poor farmer, unless it's funded by a grant from someone, is ever going to be able to use this. And so then I started really searching for people who were understanding really the the needs of the poor and the inability of the poor to be able to pay with, you know, the normal kind of tech um fees and and people who are trying to solve that problem so that they could provide people the service without the cost and also deal with the volatility issues because um, you know it's all very well if I send you a hundred dollars and you know the price of Bitcoin goes down and you've got 50 that's probably not going to change your life but for someone who's got nothing and for whom that hundred dollars means everything if it falls to $50, it's actually quite devastating. So just understanding those consequences. And then finally, I think a lot of the tech community think if they've built the tech, that's the end of the story. And it's nothing but the beginning of the story. And in particular, because they're not doing it so much now, but in those days, tech people are sitting in Silicon Valley or you know, London, Berlin, wherever they are building this thing never even going to a developing country or to a community who are likely to use the tech or understanding what are some of the cultural and adoption issues. Um, you know, even things like we'll give, we'll, you know, send money to women on mobile phones, not understanding that sometimes it's the husband who owns and controls the mobile phone, not the woman. So just those problems all need to be sorted out. So a lot of people didn't have much idea about that but I think we're seeing that changing absolutely. I guess as we move from being purely tech a technology to being a community technology right the community part is becoming more intrinsic to everything that's being built and worked out which is really interesting interesting to see like I think this year is the year of NFTs. Next year is going to be the year of DAOs. And how are we going to start organizing ourselves in different ways to solve these types of problems? So what are you working on now that's interesting? Oh, look, so many things. It's such an interesting time. Um, so one thing is I'm working with an analytics company that basically helps understand DeFi and track DeFi and what's going on. And that's been so interesting to me because I'm really in the guts of what's going on with DeFi and NFTs and all of these things. So, you know, I've just learned an enormous amount from supporting this company. I'm working on a few other projects, a couple of stablecoin projects, um, and I'm also continue to support startups, um, some in India and Africa that are working on self-sovereign identity health records for example a women's empowerment platform so a lot of different things um and uh we just 
coming to the end. I think this is a COVID thing. With Ingrid Vassilou Feltes from Miami, we've been writing a book on um, applied ethics for a digital age, including a chapter on blockchain. So there's a lot of ethical implications around blockchain. So have a look out for that. Um, and then I'm incredibly excited because I finally have permission to leave Australia. So I've got the opportunity to go out and you know, meet up with the people on the different projects that I'm working on. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to that. Isn't it funny that we live in this permissionless world, but we aren't allowed to do things in the real world? Oh, it's a very peculiar world at the moment. And I think Australian Australians and our government have really lost our way. Um, and we've lost perspective and... I'm really keen to get out there in the world and have a look back, but I'm pretty confident I will still have this opinion when I'm out. Oh, I, I think I'm going to be sort of right behind you if I can. <laughs> so many people are. I just spoke to um, someone who's relocated to Singapore from the blockchain space, uh, Jason Lee from Algorand. I was emailing him and he said, oh, I'm in Singapore now. And then I spoke to him. He said, I just couldn't take another lockdown in Melbourne. We've moved to Singapore. And I thought... I think a lot of people are going to be doing this. Yes, hopefully the lockdowns will end soon, but then we're going to have the battle between the vaccinated and the non-vaccinated. It's, it's not a good rest of the year ahead. <laughs> Someone in the government needs to grow some balls, frankly. I mean, they are shameful, our politicians. They are. Let's um, talk about other things then. <laughs> Otherwise, we're going to get aggravated. Although my next topic is one that could get us aggravated nonetheless. Um, you have been a great voice in the equality and women in blockchain space. Women like us who have a little bit more experience uh, can like relate to how different things are now from what they were 20 or 30 years ago when we started our careers. So why is that still important and what change have you seen um that are that are positive oh look a lot but one of the one of the projects i didn't tell you about that you reminded me about um i i'm actually working with uh a couple of people um, one in lisbon and one in the uk to try and develop basically a predictive index for that tracks the value of investing in women and women-owned enterprises. A bit like we can we can kind of track and we have indicators for ESG. Why why can't we track and have indicators for women's economic empowerment? So so we're working on that because we think it's really important and no one's measuring it. And then plus, I think as women, we need to take some responsibility because there's a lot of women who just complain uh, complain that it's not equal, it's not fair. There's more men in blockchain. You know, I'm a person who believes that you make your own future and you make your own fortune. And if you spend time just complaining about inequity, then you're never going to get out there and, you know, build something. So my my view uh, and the way that I've always approached women in blockchain is find the women who are already doing awesome things and make sure other people know about them. Make sure, you know, I always provide women speakers to any conference around the world who wants them because there's so many who are good, they just don't know how to find them. And then to say to women, start your own project. 
like don't complain that the men have got more projects than you where's your good idea get your team together start your own project and then I think the other thing and we're seeing it now is that you know people are starting funds that proactively invest in women we need more of that but we also need women to be deserving of the funding in a public way and I don't mean that to say that women aren't deserving but I think we need to kind of create that normality that women women can lead projects, women can build unicorns, women can juggle family and work and be awesome and speak about it and uh, show by proving it that we're worthy. I don't know if that makes sense, but I just really think our job is to get out there and do it. And I think the job of people like you and me is to talk about it in a way that helps young women understand how they can do it and how they can overcome challenges. Because for example, if you do want to maintain a full-time career and have children, it's really difficult, but it was difficult for all of us. And it will always be difficult because you've got two really important things and creating competing priorities. So, you know, just having the conversation about that and how we manage to get through it and how they can think about managing to get through it. Yeah, that's a really important point, like being in the example, leading by example, right? Not just talking the talk, but walking the talk as well. Yeah, I think that's really important because because women have to look and see other women who have done it. And and I think it's really difficult in some cultures because we're we're in an incredibly privileged culture where we have the opportunity. But I was asked that question a week or so ago when I was talking to a group in India. And I'm sure I answered the question quite fine, but my mind was going oh my goodness, they have so many kind of social and cultural and religious barriers for them to do this that what I'm saying probably sounds, you know, a little bit trite, but, you know, just trying to think about ways and also role models for them within their culture, within their religion, within their community of women who've been able to be successful is really important. How can we inspire men to help overcome some of those challenges that are cultural in, in these other places, for example? That, that's a really big problem, I think. Oh, no, look, I think it is too. And I think, you know, the best way I remember, because I worked in healthcare for many years, and the best way to be successful in getting women to adopt family planning was to persuade the men of the benefit of family planning and birth spacing. So I think, uh, and particularly in patriarchal cultures, the men are critically important to being able to support and drive and give the opportunity for their women and girls. So you're absolutely right. Um, I, I don't have the answer, but I think that having them in the conversation and having male leaders who are prepared, prepared to talk about it is really, really important. I agree. It's a, it's a difficult problem to tackle, but it's good that we have that you know in our minds and think about it because... I assume the answer would be would start with we inspire them but not being so divisive, right? It's it it's all of us working together that makes for a better place. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. All right, we are getting to the pointy end. Oh and my goodness, okay, ready to go. <laughs> ready to go. So I've introduced this a few episodes back. It's like the three final questions and they are, what are you currently reading? What's your favorite crypto resource? 
and your favorite project, which may or may not be one that you're working on. I'll leave that with you. Yeah, so, so I'm reading at the moment a book called Disintermediation Economics, The Impact of Blockchain on Markets and Policies. And this is by Eva Carley, who's uh, uh, from the EU, and Dimitrios Prasakis. It's just been published. Um, it's a very interesting read. I'm always reading something about blockchain. Um, my favorite crypto resource, I thought about that And I thought, you know, the one that I really like the best is R-E-K-T News, Rec News. I don't know if you know it. Um, a friend of mine is one of the founders of it. And I always find it fascinating because this is a group of, I, I would say, investigative crypto journalists who go into the scams and hacks and, you know, lies and cheating and unearth the truth and... I think it's absolutely fabulous and I learned so much from it because they really get into the guts of how it actually happened. And then my favorite project, my favorite project without competition is Axie Infinity. I think that the play to earn games are just changing the world and will continue to change the world in such a powerful way. And many of the listeners might have seen the video about Axie Infinity where families in the Philippines are being saved from falling into poverty by playing Axie Infinity. And they've now got... So when you play Axie Infinity, you buy three little creatures and they battle, but you have to pay for them. Uh, but people can earn something in between one and two thousand US dollars a month, which is a lot in developing countries. Um, but what they've kind of introduced it, and started, I believe, in the Philippines, just in a way of kind of almost contracting out your Axie to someone else to play and you share the profits. And this has now become something which they call an Axie scholarship program. And they've got uh, over four and a half thousand Axie scholars now who are all earning money with no risk of entering um, and being able to really improve their lives. And I think there are many more of these play to earn games uh, developing and I think we're going to see more of it. And I've always said that gaming will be the path to mass adoption of digital assets and I'm only seeing that happening in front of my very eyes now but Axie Infinity play to earn creating a new economy where people can earn money by having fun in the digital world it's just amazing I could not agree with you more. Uh, I just sent an email to Leah CB, who is the person who did that original video documentary. And uh, it's just so incredible to see the difference that something so simple in theory has made to a, a whole community, right? And it's, it's, it's been an honor talking to you about this because you hit the nail on the head in so many things that I, I'm like going, people won't see us because it's just a um, voice podcast. But, you know, for most of Jane's interview, I was just nodding, nodding, nodding. So thank you so much, Jane. That was amazing. No, thank you. And thank you for everything that you do to grow this community and educate people and help them get into it, no matter how little that they have. So it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was the heroic Dr. Jane Thomason. I love what she said about making an impact by doing, by leading, by being the example. That is something we can all strive for. 
to connect with Jane, check out the links in the description. And I would love to hear from you if you would like to help me with this podcast. I am looking for someone who can help me mix. Uh, hopefully, with um, the help of an expert, I'll be able to post this more regularly because I have been failing miserably. So, yeah, if that is you, please uh, send me a message on LinkedIn or on Twitter and we'll talk. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I will see you on the next block. Bye.